0: Professor Novak, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much, uh, Ron. Well, had a wonderful conversation the first time about uh, why religion matters, uh, not just in the modern world, as you mentioned, but in all worlds, pre-modern, modern, post-modern.
1: <laughs> and presumably
0: the future. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. Right. And today we're going to, what seems like, make of a bit of a jump cut to talk about Friedrich Nietzsche, but I think, as we'll be... Uh, disclose soon enough is that nietzsche has a fair amount of interesting things to say not just about religion perhaps in a deconstructive sense but i think some his some of his affirmative philosophy might be aligned with what we might call spirituality so Mm. uh, i'm very curious uh to get to get your take so i guess the first question Uh, Given that uh, Nietzsche has become popular both in intro philosophy classes and sort of on the street, as we were previously talking with Kanye West, uh, appropriating one of his uh, sort of turns of phrases, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Mm -hmm. People seem to be familiar, but so much context is not there. So I guess the first question I have is who was Friedrich Nietzsche? And then, dovetailing off that, why is he important to to be aware of? Sure. Uh, Nietzsche is a German
1: philosopher. Uh, He was born in 1844. Uh, He was the son uh, of a um, a Lutheran uh, pastor. I don't know anything about his mother, uh, at least I don't recall at the moment. But he was raised uh, in, a, in a, uh, an atmosphere of pretty strict Lutheran-Christian uh, piety. But he, uh, his brilliance was recognized early on even by him. He started writing when he was, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years old. And by 14, he was already looking back, critiquing his output of <laughs> age eight and age nine and how it could have been better uh he was a, he and and it wasn't only brilliance in german this uh, brilliance with letters uh led him to, to, to his his major uh scientific degree or his specialty which was philology not philosophy he was a he was a student of languages and a magnificent one so magnificent that his german professors uh uh, called him a phenomenon. They gave him a PhD without an examination, which was unheard of. And he was a full professor, uh, one of the youngest men ever to be awarded. I, think, I mean, this is stiff yeah. German universities <laughs> yeah, of the 19th right. century and that kind of thing. So he was a brilliant, brilliant uh, Guy, but he was a he was a word man, a philologist, and uh, he worked at the University of Basel for ten years, teaching philology, teaching ancient languages. Also, learning how languages lie or don't get things, you know, uh, uh, and and how taking things literally, uh, we don't often see what the dangers are of taking things literally. when we don't see um, how things can be translated into other languages and how how things don't translate and how metaphors are used and he, he saw the the fundamental um, um, uh, weaknesses you might say of linguistic utterance, and that gave him part of his skepticism about everything that had ever been written, not not only plays and novels and and epics, but of course when he turned his mind to philosophy. From Socrates uh, uh, down. Okay, so he taught for ten years as a philologist, but got sick of the university life. And one can only imagine that his brain was just on fire with these ideas. And he was not a well man. I mean, when you think about this, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. You think maybe he was a he was some kind of athlete or a, a physical specimen. In fact, he was. Most of his adult life, um, very, uh, very, very ill and plagued by by illness after illness. Um, just to take a little piece to give you a sense of this, uh, in the preface to a, a book that I wrote on Nietzsche, uh, this solitary nomad, Nietzsche, would rent a Spartan, poorly heated room, the only sort he could afford because he was living on a small pension from the university. He left. He just... He would have had a great life as a as a as a philologist, but he couldn't he couldn't take it. He'd take a daily walk in the surrounding heights and then return to write books he knew would change the world, although all his books fell dead from the press uh, uh, He went insane before his greatness was realized, and none of the great books that he had written. Uh, had any kind of um, uh, any kind of initial success they they were all uh failures so the poor guy must have known uh what what revelations were pouring out of this on fire brain of his uh but um, uh, but seeing again and again that that um, they they weren't catching hold of course in the ten years, the last ten years of his life, which were in a, a demented uh, state, um, his reputation soared, but he apparently didn't didn't know any of uh, any of that. I'm. Uh, I was about to say something about his uh, his health. Uh, this decade of uh, moving around uh, Europe. Uh, from place to place, writing, It was to be a decade of maddening, nearly unendurable loneliness, exacerbated by severely deteriorating health. He had myopia, inherited from his father, uh, that rendered him nearly blind. Excruciating migraines plagued him since preadolescence and now tortured him for hours and sometimes days at a time. Painful cramps regularly clawed at his sensitive stomach, often resulting in fits of spasmodic vomiting that lasted for days on end chronic insomnia singed his nerves until he drugged himself to sleep with chloral hydrate so uh, his natural body was not his friend uh, even though sometimes he's singing the glories of 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 nature and the vital life unlike few poets that 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 we've ever uh, met but this was the reality of his um, of his physical life during that decade, when he, uh, from uh, what uh, seventy six to eighty nine or so, thirteen years, when he wrote virtually all of his major uh, major works, um, so, and 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 then um, in uh, eighteen eighty nine, uh, he uh, on a street in, in Italy, he um, he saw a horse being beaten. Uh, I think the story goes, mm-hmm. and he um, he he intervened to try and stop it, screaming. But it was it, it somehow was the last straw that unhinged his mind, and he spent the last eleven years of his life in a um, in a completely mentally incapacitated uh, condition, and died in 1900. Okay, that's a little bit about Nietzsche. Why is he important? Well, one could start to talk about the aspects of the Western philosophical tradition that he critiqued, uh, what new ideas he brought in that have stayed in this last 150 years, uh, the the fact that he is the kind of grandfather of uh, the postmodern deconstructive uh, movement. Uh, the the standpoint of perspectivism that everything is perspective that there are no objective truths and everything is interpretation that interpretation is based on uh, each per each viewer's each thinker's uh, conditioning physical mental genetic uh, social a- and so on uh, and all that's true but as one of his translators put it in a way that I I immediately felt myself agreeing with wholeheartedly, one doesn't read Nietzsche just because somebody has given you a list of his important vi- importance vis-a-vis the whole history of Western philosophy. One reads Nietzsche to get airborne. <laughs> he is so electrifying. His prose is so beautiful. Uh, Hermann Wauk, the great novelist, said there are philosophers that can write and philosophers that can't. Nietzsche was in the small group of philosophers that could and perhaps the greatest prose, uh, stylist, philosopher since Plato and probably even better than Plato. Maybe the best, the the, the greatest writing talent that, that philosophy has ever seen. And of course he wrote, not in... Long discursive chapters with lots of footnotes, but in these these uh, epigraphs, mm-hmm. these uh, relatively short sections, we just blow in like a wind and pow, and then he then he'd all be off on uh, on the next uh, epigram or section, and uh, but he did this book after book and delivered such enormously insightful things or at least exciting that made you think and just took your breath away the brilliance and sometimes the the uh the olympian kind of laughter the god's humor of mm-hmm. of some of his insights so that's it he was mm-hmm. a, a just a so exciting uh, uh to read and so um uh, uh yes to uh, to know. get airborne but of course, there's also uh, the con the content, and oh, all right. I think I'll stop there for for his importance. But now I'd like to say one more thing before I ask another question. As I came to read more about Nietzsche and read Nietzsche and and uh, and, and studying more, it seems to me. Um, there are two Nietzsche's. This is going to be a little overly neat, but I'm going to call it two Nietzsche's. You could say, le- least descriptively, an early Nietzsche and a late Nietzsche. Um, but I'd rather, I'd rather, talk about his destructive phase and then his creative phase, mm-hmm. uh, or. Um, What seemed to initially pour out of his well of insight was a disgust Hmm. at human beings as they currently were. But somehow, when that, um, when he ran the, 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 the course of that disgust and that critique of humanity, he understood as if instinctually he needed to offer an alternative. And that's when he began to build. I don't think he ever built back more than he destroyed because he was such a thoroughly critical thinker. But he did
0: abandon
1: that critical, destructive, philosophi- what he called philosophizing with a hammer right. uh, phase of his life to take a, a, a sharp turn to try and articulate something as we might say, positive, creative, to show a way forward for the for the thinking mm-hmm. uh, for the thinking man and woman. Um, so that's that's how I'd like to work in this conversation Great. to touch back to this destroyer phase uh, and uh, uh, or destructive phase, creative phase, destroyer creator. I just want to give you. Um, a sense um, of this uh, destructive phase, starting at the uh, when he left Basel in 1876. It's when he began writing "Human, All Too Human." He explained the significance of his title, "A Human, All Too Human," in this way: where you, meaning all the rest of you, see ideal things. I see human, alas, all too human things. In my view, no words could better express the skepticism and nihilistic tendencies that were to dominate Nietzsche's thought from this point forward. Deeply influenced by Darwin's vision of humanity as an outgrowth of the natural and animal worlds, Nietzsche suspected that the human intellect and its spiritual products, culture, morality, religion, religion, are ultimately governed by biological imperatives. Religious beliefs, far from forming a true picture of some higher world that is really there, are, Nietzsche felt, self-deceptions that feed on visceral fears and cravings. God, truth, free will, the very foundations of our self-assessment as higher creatures, are fictions. We are clever animals, but our cleverness is meaningless there is no overarching purpose to life no larger story in which we play a role humanity stands alone projecting its futile metaphysical dreams on a dark and indifferent infinity of space that's the beginning (laughs) and the launch pad of that destructive uh, phase and now more briefly just a few words of Nietzsche himself to get this idea or this phase solidly in uh, place. Four quotes from Nietzsche, very, very brief. He who has to be a creator always has to destroy. Second, and let everything that can break upon our truths break. There is many a house still to build. What are you really doing? It may be asked of me, erecting an ideal or knocking one down. If a temple is to be erected, I say, a temple must first be destroyed. That is the law. And then, very powerfully toward the end of his life, I'm not a man, I'm dynamite.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very provocative. Yeah.
1: But now, as I say, the creative phase doesn't, uh, quantitatively, uh, in time mm-hmm. and even in and in uh, what uh, and in quantitative material, d- doesn't doesn't match. It's it's not it's uh, doesn't match up uh, or completely um, uh, compensate for, right. if you want to say, the destructive phase. But he clearly saw that the destructive phase, the nihilism mm. to which it led, to which philosophizing with a hammer which means by destruction, by critique by completely seeing through verbal illusions of the whole western tradition that hammering and hammering and hammering suddenly in one sense he saw that there was nothing left and he needed to take a turn until 1881 Nietzsche wrote almost exclusively in the skeptical destructive vein he gleefully called philosophy with a hammer But in August of 1881, and we don't know exactly what happened, Nietzsche wrote a postcard to a friend, and he said this, Ideas have arisen on my horizon. This is eight years before he died. Ideas have arisen on my horizon, the likes of which I have never seen before. I am filled with a new vision. End quote. A few months later, Nietzsche proclaimed that he was finished with negation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He said, I want to be at all times hereafter only an affirmer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In German it's ein ja sagender, a person who only says yes. Mm-hmm. Nietzsche had found God unbelievable, but he had also found nihilism unlivable. Mm-hmm. To be sure, Nietzsche never really abandoned his critical stance. It was with him till the end. But from this time on, 1881, for those last eight years, Nietzsche sought to create, in the very midst of his critique, a new redemptive vision, and I don't think that's too strong a word, a redemptive vision for a world in which the old God had died. It would revolve around the figure of the Superman and his life-affirming, earth-embracing, despair-defying, joyful wisdom, what is sometimes translated as gay science, Freuliche wissenschaft but I think it's a much better translation, a joyful wisdom. Mm. Gay science, especially today, the, uh, the word gay has been used and come to be used in such a different uh, way, and it really points to this uh, notion that there could be a wisdom Uh, because Nietzsche obviously thought a brilliant mind uh, his own brilliant mind was so great at breaking things down because he saw so clearly through so many things but then he wanted this joyful wisdom the wisdom of creation the wisdom of saying yes and he looked to create a foundation uh, for that in his later later writings so um, that's I think the two poles upon which yeah. our, philo- our conversation can go can go, never forgetting that Nietzsche was yeah. was was both. Uh, although he did take this turn in 1881, saying, "I'm done with saying no. I want to yeah. say
0: yes." <laughs> Absolutely. <Yeah. laughs> well, that's a brilliant preamble, and I think I really like the way that you're looking at these two phases a couple of thoughts that mm-hmm. I thought were really useful so why nietzsche and I think what you said because it makes you think yeah and I think in these times of fake news and trying to figure out what is true and what's not it seems that have someone that provokes you to think to question is of paramount <laughs> importance and then also the part of just the the beauty of his prose of his language and so to both be able to think and to do so in a way to where there's an aesthetic quality to that, it seems pretty compelling. Yeah. Uh, so so that was, I think, pretty useful. Uh, as far as looking at these two phases, sort of the destroyer and the creator, uh, to dig a little bit deeper with that first phase, mm-hmm. as you were mentioning, to philosophize with a hammer, mm-hmm. where he's using a hammer to tap the various idols of the time to see what's hollow, what might actually have value. Yes. Uh, I think a good place to start is something that not only everyone's probably heard of within the context of wherever the Western culture may have gone uh, but may have not referenced understand the references Nietzsche's proclamation God is dead yes Uh, that seems to be definitely part of the destroyer phase Mm -hmm. and so I was hoping that you could unpack that what did he mean by that I think that it's definitely been taken out of context And people sort of seem to think that he was uh, sort of embracing nihilism, but I think it was far from that. So, yeah, what does "God is dead"? What did he mean? Yes, I, I, um,
1: I, I agree with you. It wasn't a mere or simple uh, nihilism uh, at all, Um, and so. I'd like to begin again with a, a few um, a few words that I wrote once about the death of God, and let's see if it um, and a few of Nietzsche's own, because it's always important to hear from the master, since he was <laughs> such a a, a great uh, a great, a great writer. Uh, no aspect of Nietzsche's teaching is better known than his announcement that God is dead. That phrase actually conveys two Nietzschean convictions. The first is, it's not some kind of general statement that all possible ideas of God are completely useless. Uh, Nietzsche himself understood that there were philosophers who thought about God uh, very profoundly. But what he was referring to is that the the Judeo-Christian notion of God, as it's usually taken uh, in Scripture or in standard uh, assertions of belief, that was no longer credible, or becoming more and more incredible mm-hmm. to more and more of the intellects of Europe as science uh, continued to progress. In in, in that way, he was he was he was seeing something that was obviously happening, and he knew he was way ahead of the curve, meaning that there were still people packing the churches. All mm-hmm. this is eight. This is the late nineteenth uh, century. And the movement of modern atheism was just, just in, kind of in its infancy. Um, and yet he felt it would be an unstoppable trend uh, as people, as modernity became more and more aware of scientific facts, that, that the, death, the death of credibility <laughs> of the typical Judeo-Christian picture of God. Uh, so that's one of the things he meant. Second, though, he he also wanted to bring criticality to even the whole I- idea of another metaphysical world, of a um, uh, an invisible world that's a perfect world behind this one, uh, kind of critiquing uh, the old Platonic idea, mm. not necessarily Judeo-Christian, but the old pagan idea of the divine world as somehow the perfect eternal world that this... That this moving world in time is is but a pale or abstract re- mm. re- reflection of. He he. Uh, oh, so that's what he uh, wanted to announce the death of, or maybe even contribute to the <laughs> <laughs> uh, contribute to the death of. Um, so, but Nietzsche realized there would be a tremendous price to be paid by the void that would be left if, in fact, God continued to die. And the the idea of the metaphysical world, the perfected world, called it the spiritual world, um, uh, continued to die. And that's why he called the death of God the greatest event in modern history as well as the cause of extreme danger. That's a Mm. quote from Nietzsche. We therefore misunderstand Nietzsche's attitude unless we hear in these words, the death of God, both Nietzsche's exaltation and his horror. Exaltation because Nietzsche, the prophet of new possibilities, eagerly anticipates what humanity might become when, and this is a Nietzschean phrase, when we no longer flow out into a god. The death of God is for him the birth pang of a new humanity. A humanity that doesn't lose all its energy by cowering and worshipping something outside of itself. Uh, but uh, a humanity that, that can find divinity within itself. Uh, at least, that's the, that's the nugget being born here. But he was horrified also because this most sensitive religious thinker, and I do think Nietzsche was a deeply religious thinker, understood that since God had for so long been a constant in the human soul, in human discourse, in human culture, God's demise marks a new and treacherous phase of of the human story, one that will witness nothing less than a transposition of valley and mountain such as never been dreamed of. These are uh, also words of Nietzsche. Only a vision that can claim equally deep access to the human soul can fill the void left by God's departure. And that's a very tall order. Nietzsche was far from sanguine about the terrible truth that God is dead, and this is vividly conveyed in the words of the madman who uh, announces uh, God's death. It's a long and famous uh, passage in the uh, uh, in uh, the Gay Science. Uh, is that right? Uh, Yes, um, 125, but I'll just take a short piece. And this first piece is in italics, underlined. We have killed him, you and I. All of us are God's murderers. But how have we done this? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What did we do when we unchained this earth from its sun? Where is it moving now? Where are we moving now? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is it not night? And more night coming on all the while? Yeah. So he, he, he I think he was aware that when, in some way, that when there is no God, mm-hmm. the first thing that moves in to stand in is the state. And the state, not being spiritual, manifests itself in the great leader, whose picture is everywhere, and who demands complete loyalty, and who also, unlike God, tends to be paranoid about all the people that aren't being loyal. And so, the, the and so, you know, we begin right. the 20th century, the century of mass death uh, that, Le- that Nietzsche didn't live to see, but that were uh, uh, the spectacle of three great totalitarianisms Nietzsche's Stalin's Mao's and Pol Pot's in Cambodia wiping out over a hundred million innocent non-combatant civilians in the name of what in the name of God no in the name of a state and I think Nietzsche knew people do crappy things in the name of God they might do crappier things <laughs> without God. And in fact, uh, that's the case. Now, that doesn't mean we should run back to religion uncritically, but I think right. Nietzsche, in his, in his metaphors, of is it get, isn't it getting colder? Now we're unchained from our sun. What do we do? He realized that as more and more people could no longer believe in the old fairy tales, they still need something. Some new direction right. would have to lead human evolution because puppet dictators and, and so on claiming absolute earthly power were not going to do it. And I think he knew that. And by the way, he would have been no fan of, even though the, the Nazis were fans of Nietzsche, Nietzsche would have been no fan of the Nazis. Yeah. But that's a, because sometimes people hear right. Nietzsche and they think Nazi, oh, Hitler, yeah. like, like the Superman and all that. No. Uh, it, yeah. it, that, that mistake ought not to be uh, made, but that's another whole, whole story.
0: Well, it's a great yeah. footnote, uh, and perhaps <clears throat> if the conversation goes there, we can, um, you can uh, elaborate. You know, one of the things that I was thinking about as you were uh, talking about what led to Nietzsche's proclamation or almost diagnosis of uh, God is dead is this advance of science and technology and how it was sort of this acid throne on um, religion as it had been known. And I wanted to almost rewind the tape a bit to his first book, uh, the book uh, The Birth of Tragedy, because yes. I think there's something instructive. He, he definitely admired the ancient Greeks in a lot of ways. And he looked at uh the apollonian and dionysian how they were in tandem they worked together both were needed logic and sort of illogical wild um creative side reason and passion yeah right and And so i'm wondering if you could uh talk about that because i think it gives an interesting critique of where we may according to nietzsche have gotten off the path of finding more balance by just becoming disciples of reason um but how it eclipsed rather than integrated the passions so what what was Nietzsche saying in Birth of Tragedy how um, Apollo and Dionysus uh, it's not one or the other it's both
1: when I when I took uh, a couple of years out to reread all of Nietzsche Birth of Tragedy did not capture my attention Uh, and I don't I don't feel those that mm. Apollonian and Dionysian reflection really made a lasting contribution mm. to his 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 thought. So I'm afraid I can't be of, of okay. much help there. I think uh, um, yeah yeah that's I, fine. And and, and and rather than yeah rather than warble on uh, about something I'm. Not not too impressed by. I think I'll take a pass it, on that. It
0: seems it seems that that's perhaps almost more of a, a standard uh, perspective uh, in the sense. Uh, I will say one thing before transitioning to another question about the genealogy of morals. But um, what I did like about it was that way of framing uh, that we need both reason and we need perhaps the passions. And I like that he said that before uh, the emergence of Socrates and reason there was Greek tragedy, which made sense of both and that the people were part of the, the chorus. So you look at tragedy, looking at the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. How does one make sense of that? And so to be part of this community, this participation where by the end of tragedy, there was a sense of catharsis mm. that would kind of recreate a sense of harmony and order in the midst of, you know, outrageous fortune uh there's a certain amount that makes sense to that meaning that reason alone as we talked about last uh conversation Mm -hmm. mythos and logos Mm -hmm. so there was an element of mythos involved um within that but in a very participatory way uh so i personally have found that compelling Mm. um feeling that much of what has been lost uh in today's world is perhaps those those connections uh But I hear your point, and so uh, we'll... And in in one sense, we've already brushed on that point in our conversation
1: when we talked about how one of Nietzsche's unmasking strategies was to see uh, the biological imperatives underneath even our so-called highest non-biological functions and discourse and and ideas. And so that, that might have been his way of carrying on the with uh, while dropping the Apollonian Dionysian vocabulary right. he was still uh, reminding of course he what a what a mind what an Apollonian mind Nietzsche <laughs> had what a brilliant logical verbal mind but he very much wanted to say that 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 Apollonian mind rides on an undercurrent of feeling and passion right. and 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 uh,
0: and uh, 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 guts, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, his, and in his case, dynamite. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And right, and, yeah.
1: and his critique of morality in not in the sense of uh, a critique of virtue. I think Nietzsche had a great respect for the common and traditional virtues of generosity and magnanimity and so forth but like most of us I grew up a hundred years after Nietzsche grew up uh, but I grew up in a, in, a, in a Christian environment and it seemed like all morality meant to us as children was sexual morality, mm. what you do and don't do about about sex uh whereas r- true ethics is uh, it's a much wider <laughs> wider field and so i think when uh, part of nietzsche's critique against morality is uh a pushback against this um perhaps uh, puritanical trend within within christian morality to deride the body to deride the visible and the uh, earthy as somehow uh, non-valuable and he's pushing back with his Dionysian uh, balancing point right. uh, he wasn't suggesting we should all just party yeah. that wasn't Nietzsche <laughs> but he was suggesting that maybe our our uh, abs- uh, we who who inherit the realm of abstractions and ideas uh, we culture uh, we we of we the chattering class you know we ought <laughs> to constantly remember how right. much of our lives
0: are driven by by biological and survival imperatives, right. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you were definitely alluding to his critiques of morality. So we can seem like a great segue. Uh, some people even said he had a war on morality or traditional Judeo-Christian um, morality. Uh, and I know that one of the more compelling uh, dichotomies was master-slave morality. So I'm wondering, however you want to approach it, uh, what was Nietzsche's critique? on Judeo-Christian morality, and what was it about perhaps ancient Greek and Roman uh, morality that he seemed to extol the virtues of? Yeah. Um, his, uh, his
1: deep historical way into a criticism or a critique of Christian morality um, was to suggest uh, that as Christianity developed... In the Roman Empire uh, that was its first first uh, uh, scrimmage field you might say <laughs> right. um, it was the it was the, it was the chosen a uh, point of view of the of the of the lower classes or the non aristocratic uh, traditional Roman uh, uh, citizen and Nietzsche felt that um when Christians started to talk about uh, turn the other cheek and and uh, and love one another, uh, that that was the morality of slaves trying to make their masters feel guilty for crushing them underfoot. Uh, Nietzsche, uh, I mean, he could overdo it at times, but uh, and this is this is terribly uh, 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 bald, uh, but he felt that the, uh, among the Greek and Roman aristocracy, there was a kind of natural superiority, and they weren't bothered by the idea of other beings being lower than they were, or of less worth than they were, and, and, uh, and live that could live out that kind of attitude. Whereas as Christianity started to spread... It was suggesting people shouldn't be like that. We should all be children of a loving God. We should all love one another. We should be kind. We should be compassionate. We should turn the other cheek. Uh, that sounds nice, but Christian. Uh, but Nietzsche suggested that, <laughs> uh, and let's and let's remove that from, from from. We'll get to Nietzsche on Jesus later. Yeah. But um, Jesus felt that this was. Underclass people of the times yeah. resenting uh, their masters, and right. the only way they could get an upper hand was to was to uh, try to create a new uh, culture, right. forming religion, which gave those uh, which right. put that, that, that master mor- that master morality of, right. of individual superiority, or the, or the superiority of the few, um, uh, sub- subjugated or subrated it this right. uh, morality of the of the many or the weak yeah. i think that's what um, yeah. he was getting at he took it took it from there yeah it
0: seems like what he was saying was that christianity morality could be very consoling to a slave yeah and that's great if you're a slave but that's everybody
1: what... goes to heaven god loves you just yeah. as he loves anybody else uh you need paul has a thing when you become a christian you're no longer right. free or slave, Roman or Jew, this or that, you are a son. And this did have a tremendous appeal to those people who weren't rewarded naturally by their birth. Yeah,
0: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And and not only appealing, perhaps, to those that were at the bottom of the hierarchy, and understandably so, uh, you could become part of this community and feel part of maybe there was something in the afterlife and it doesn't on the surface seem like a bad thing, but I think his critiques interesting because if we begin to extol that, then perhaps what becomes later this will to power, this sense of life is about achievement, accomplishment, mm. moving the needle, mm. then you sort of forego that tendency by being too meek. And I think that that is something that is quite compelling mm. and, and we don't wind up perhaps owning what... Mm. Is within us uh-huh. uh, in ways that even, regardless of one's socioeconomic mm. status, it's easier to perhaps say that today. Yeah. Uh, but I think there is something intriguing um, about that notion, right? Uh, I, I agree with you. We should talk a
1: little bit more now about the will to power. Okay. But I, I do want to say um, that finally, for what it's worth, the will to power. Though a very interesting and profound idea, obviously, and one of Nietzsche's key ones, I think it did not serve him well, ultimately. Mm. I think that's one of the things that stood that stood in the way of his turn against the destructive, mm. uh, uh, nihilistic critique right. toward a more positive vision. Because, finally, that more positive vision would require something like love and compassion right the yeah. kinds of buddhist and christian virtues sure. and but he 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 deprived himself of a basis you might say right. a metaphysical basis upon which to articulate that right. and so we get the hope for a superman but this superman is one of a few not yeah. a, you know, right, right. And well, so yeah. he has trouble. He has trouble seeing yeah. how how his new human mm-hmm. can grow into a happy community, right. a happy society, and I, and I think that that's one of Nietzsche's uh, what, what uh, flaws, maybe f- flaws, and and, uh, right. and 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 and
0: and. Um, well, and it's interesting because in many times, if you, it seems like he contradicts himself, yes. uh, depend, you know, throughout <laughs> this corpus. Right. Uh, but, but I think maybe on closer examination, he's just a little bit more granular. He's critiquing certain aspects of religion, not religion per se. Like he seemed that he had a lot of admiration for Jesus. Yes. What he seemed to be critiquing was a herd mentality or people not truly embodying and living out the creed. Whereas that's exactly what Kierkegaard, as we were talking. Before we hit uh, play, uh, was also critiquing about Christianity, but he was an existentialist Christian. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't an atheist. He, in fact, made that leap, um, trying to, but that's a very hard thing to truly live out what, and become Jesus. It's, it's very easy to go to church and read the book, and on surface, you're a Christian, but to truly live out that life of charity. And with that sense of humility and love, to love thy neighbor as thyself. I mean, that is a tall order. Right. <laughs> and most people weren't exactly doing that. So I think those critiques of being a Christian but not living that lifestyle yeah. to the bone yeah. is, is probably a valid one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I want to put in a
1: word about yeah. herd mentality. Of course, it's easy for us to use a phrase like that. It, it's so intrinsically <laughs> negative. We say, ah, oh, herd mentality. Right. But herd mentality, in another version, of course, is social solidarity. Sure. <laughs> and, and, and that's one of Christianity's great right. offerings to world history. Sure. I mean, well, the reason it survived the death of the Roman Empire is it offered community on a scale far better than anything available Absolutely. as the roman empire started to fade there wasn't social security in the roman empire there wasn't there wasn't uh, there wasn't even <laughs> much <Right>. of a <laughs> middle class yeah. you had some security in that very rough chaotic disintegrating couple of hundred years right. if you had a brother and sister in church and you knew that if yeah. if uh, you know if someone in your family died, you had people who were, were going to take care of you because you all loved Jesus. And and a Christian community is a wonderful thing. So I don't want to put down herd mentality right. as as such, but um, Nietzsche, being a philologist. Um, one of the other things that fed into his critique of religion, um, as we said before, science was uh, one of those things, but another one was the increasing um, amount and and, and uh, quality of scholarship on the historical Jesus, New Testament scholarship a deeper and deeper... Re- all the all the early Christian literature was written in Greek. And, of course, Nietzsche knew the Greek. But he also saw that people were starting to go into the Greek and understand more and more about the historical Jesus that right. made the historical Jesus quite different from the proclaimed Jesus right. of the later Christians. And I think Nietzsche started to see that. Uh, right. And I think these days we see it quite clearly right. that, in fact, Jesus seemed to be a... a, 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 a a the prophet of a a Jewish renewal movement right. pointing the way to c- and say yeah. let's get back to God and instead a uh, group but and it's just natural for people who are religious right. geniuses we can't all be, but instead of going the way that jesus pointed let's get back to God, people just decided to make a magical, mystical figure out of him and right. to suck his finger or to hold on to his finger. <laughs> you know, and, and, but that demythologization of Jesus right. was already well underway by Christian scholars mm-hmm. in the 19th century. And Nietzsche was aware of that going on. Mm. Uh, yeah. And that's why he could say he liked Jesus. Oh, yeah. He thought he was great, but what, what, he felt Jesus was good news. But he then felt that the good news went bad <laughs> as soon as Paul started to create the, what, what Nietzsche called the crude Redeemer fable, of the, of the Redeemer who has been living in heaven forever, who takes flesh to become a blood sacrifice for the sins of the world. Right. Of course, that's basic Christianity for a lot of people, but Nietzsche found that not at all in Jesus and in Paul. And in fact, in the incarnation, the atonement, and this idea of Jesus as, as God from, from, from all eternity, those weren't taught by Jesus. Those were taught about Jesus afterward mm-hmm. by Christians. And so, uh, 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 again, this critique, not necessarily of religious ideas, Nietzsche liked the Buddha too. He has a lot of positive things to say about the Buddhism so far as he knew it yeah. in the 19th century. Right. And he likes Jesus. But when these ideas get... Myth- uh, when these people and their ideas get mythologized right. and these figures become hero myths, yeah. for better and for worse, that's where Nietzsche starts to bring his hammer sure. and starts to attack. And he, 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 because he sees a part of what comes out of that hero myth unconscious uh, uh gravitation toward the toward uh, worshiping the hero myth is the herd mentality which then apart from the social solidarity positive aspect can also become mob rule and mob right. violence and violence to those who don't share your 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 particular brand of of religious ideas right. and Nietzsche was also well aware of the terrible christian on christian violence uh not not. Not long gone in, in, in Europe, the yeah. the Hundred Years' War and so on in the it was the seventeenth century, uh, just Christians fighting Christians yeah. brutally uh, to the death over small issues over
0: over doctrine. You know? Right. So, excellent. Well, I think. The listener, I know I do, have a much better sense of uh, how to philosophize with a hammer in the Nietzschean sense, and that destructive nature, which to a certain degree is is healthy. Within the context of using an ecological metaphor, we know that you need not just producers, but decomposers, microbes, to, for the cycle of life to continue. Right. So it seems that in many respects, Nietzsche may have been one of those people trying to break down and dissolve dead structure so that new growth could emerge. And I think this could be a good time to to look at what is this affirmative philosophy? What did he begin to slowly build or at least intimate what was possible? And I think one of the ways that could be a good way to start that is one of his famous terms, the the ubermensch or the superman or the overman. And I think that seems to represent in some respects what he felt was possible. Um, Mm. Right. Good. I...
1: I think you're going in uh, in a perfectly excellent direction, but I feel that we'll be on even more solid ground if we take a couple of minutes each for two other key ideas of Nietzsche. Uh, the will to power, as we mentioned before, okay. just to get, just to make sure that our listeners, if they don't uh, know Nietzsche, uh, don't fall into one common mistake. We'll see if we can take care of that with will to power. And then a very important statement he made about truth. Great. Uh, and then right on into into the Übermensch. So, sometimes I think when people hear the will to power, they they think of the world's generals and political figures and dictators, the people who... Uh, e- e- even, even if they're pretending to uh, or, or, or wanting to do it for the benefit of others, they are having power over others. Uh, meaning the in, uh, uh, an individual willing him or herself to a more powerful position vis-a-vis other individuals. But for Nietzsche, that form of the will to power was already secondary or tertiary when he said "will to power," he was he was being um, profoundly metaphysical, pointing to something that precedes human life, that even precedes the chimpanzees from which we came, even precedes the animals, goes back to plants, to bugs. It's the life force, really. It's what Schopenhauer called um, the will to live. Uh, I believe Nietzsche turns it to will to power to give it a certain kind of psychological uh, uh, more psychological functionality it seems to me uh, analytically, mm. but we've got to remember that he's mm. speaking here of something again deeply biological which manifests itself in a zillion ways so 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 much so that he'll he'll mm. say that when philosophers. At their most ideal, want to get at the truth, uh, 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 will um, sacrificing any mm. of their their how should I say their their pet notions or their their prior convictions to to get to truth. That is, Nietzsche said, a philosophical will to power uh, to to seek to seek truth. Um, again, it's not power over; it's just the way that. That throb for life or for more fullness makes its way even in in men and women who are whose energy is uh, what wound around the cognitive and and whose best productions are these uh, right. intellectual abstractions uh, to, to of course uh, systems or f- formulations of truth. So not only raw power over individuals or getting people, you know, so that you can move them around, but even people questing for goodness or for love or for truth, that too is a manifestation of the will to power. So we've got to remember that it it comes Mm -hmm. from a very deep and general base and it's manifested in many, many possible forms in life. Nietzsche simply wanted to point to its inescapability in terms of that life force Every everybody, Donald Trump, as well as Jesus and the Buddha, <laughs> and everybody, and all this, all the great saints, maybe all the great sinners. We all, to some extent, have the will to power beating inside of us. We are we are a servant. <laughs> uh, but, but then, of course, the question would be: How might we best be? Or right. is there an ideal way of being the servant of the will to power? Uh, since we'll never we'll never. Get on top of it, it's always underneath right. us. Okay, so this is one short paragraph from Nietzsche just to make this clear in his language. Granted, finally, that one succeeded in explaining our entire instinctual life as the development and ramification of one basic form of will. I call it will to power. Granted that one could trace all organic functions back to this will to power and could also find in it the solution to the problem of procreation and nourishment because they are one problem, we would then have acquired the right to define all efficient force in the universe unequivocally as will to power, will zur macht. The world seen from within the world described and defined according to its intelligible character, it would be will to power and nothing else. So deep, deep kind of maybe maybe somebody's mm-hmm. modern concept of energy or something right. like that, life energy or life force. But again we've got to right. we've got to not think of it as 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 a uh, as a celebration of this, of strong people, uh, you know, commanding uh, yeah. having their commanding their will over over uh, the rest of us. Okay, the other thing is truth.
0: Well, uh, can I just yes. quick quick? I wanted to, sure, to sure. add to that because I, I think it's very helpful. And, and I think really useful to clarify what can be mistaken as you were saying and it seems that it's also in contrast to, to what Schopenhauer that will to live what just seemed to be about survival and Nietzsche seems to be saying no life is more than just survival mm. there might be something inherent that's beyond just that because yes. that's very Darwinian and as much as he seemed to like Darwin and evolution he felt right. there was something being left out Right. Uh, and, and I think that is very compelling. Something almost more noble yes. um, about about life itself right. than just trying to survive. Yes. And and so I think that you're conveying. And, and that. there you could hear bells go off, even of
1: his favorite whipping boy, Plato. <laughs> yeah. Because what he wanted really was not just more life, I.e., survival, yeah. but excellent life, intense life, yeah. intense beauty, intense flourishing, uh, flourishing eudaimonia. It, exactly, <laughs> eudaimonia, well-being yeah. in a higher register. Then he saw, and I think in his mm-hmm. deepest moments, he wished this for everybody. Right? Uh, yeah, great. And that's where I see the the real religious heart of Nietzsche coming out. He wanted the world to be full of well being, but he first saw this need to, you know, wipe the slate cleaner, yeah. get rid of all the mistakes. But of course, there's so many you could go on forever with that, and 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 then you know how to how to restart. Okay, so the two great players sometimes, well, sometimes Apollo, Dionysius, but sometimes truth and power. Mm. Um, Because in, in philosopher talk, if there is only power, then really there is no such thing as truth. There are only people pretending that they get at the truth uh, trying to enforce their will uh, but but using that as an excuse uh to exert their will to power uh and there are only power games because in this in this clash of billions of wills to power billions of there is no truth to get to that's merely a conceptual abstraction there're only People playing these energy games, and everybody, and and some people try to befuddle others by saying, No, no, I've gotten beyond the energy games because I've come to objective truth. And Nietzsche starts to say, Maybe there's no such thing as objective truth. Maybe it's all will to power uh, games. But then I think Nietzsche saw the contradiction that he landed himself in. If you start saying, As he once did, there are no truths, only interpretations driven by the personal will. Then even that statement is an interpretation and carries no general
0: truth to it. Performative contradiction.
1: Performative contradiction. (laughs) Beautiful. That's exactly what it is. As Wilbur points out, and as you know, the performative contradiction. So, what does... Nietzsche do. I think I found the passage in Nietzsche that may have been the the seed of this turn to the creator this, this turn to the, the creative and the positive and the attempt to uh, be life affirming and it has to do with what I might call the inevitability of truth mm-hmm. um that, that a world of pure power relations finally doesn't hold up. And Nietzsche realized that even in attempting to convince people that it's all about power, he realized that he too was at the very deepest still hoping that there was something called truth that a mind could arrive at and thereby tell people that this was the right thing to right, think about yeah. the world, that it's all will to power. So he comes at it um, in this unbelievable uh, passage. Do we have time? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. okay. Um, I've uh, shared this with my... Uh, David Loy, the Buddhist philosopher, and I both love this uh, uh, passage very much. It shows... How how a different kind of philosopher Nietzsche was. He's driving home this point, and yet in even in the midst of a, a certain strong point, he can start seeing or showing you that he too is. This is the way to begin critiquing his own self <laughs> about this point. Uh, so uh, so uh, this is in. Uh, the joyful wisdom, sometimes called the, the gay science um, pages uh, uh, section uh, 344 so it's a moment that Nietzsche begins the selection by saying uh, how we meaning we free thinking, atheist, deconstructionist how we too still are pious, meaning how we don't realize how down deep we're still in the same boat as as religious people. And so he begins this way, first talking about science. In science, convictions have no rights of citizenship. Only when they descend, take themselves down to the modesty of hypotheses, they may be granted admission to science and even a certain value in the realm of knowledge. But this does not mean that a conviction may obtain admission to science only when it ceases to be a conviction. Would it not be the first step in the discipline of the scientific spirit that one would not permit oneself any more convictions? I mean, it would seem so. If you want to be truly scientific, you just keep on offering hypotheses because any conviction you come to might be undone by a further conviction. So maybe we should just mm. get rid of all our conviction? Probably this is so, but we still have to ask. To make it possible for this discipline of questioning our convictions, for this to even begin, must there not be some even prior conviction? So prior, that is so commanding and unconditional that it sacrifices all other convictions to itself. Now we see that science also rests on a faith. There simply is no science, quote, without presuppositions. Mm -hmm. The question whether truth is needed must not only have been affirmed in advance by all scientists. In other words, all scientists... Before they even get going, they're already presuming there's a truth to get to. (laughs) You can get beyond opinions and get to a piece of knowledge. Uh, Um, Whether truth is needed must not only have been affirmed in advance, but affirmed to such a degree that the principle, the faith, the conviction finds expression in this way. Quote, Nothing is needed more than truth. And in relation to everything else, it has only, in relation to it, everything else has only second rate value. This unconditional will to truth, this is what drives all of empirical science. But what is it? What do you know in advance of the character of existence to be able to decide whether the greater advantage is to be on the side of the unconditionally mistrustful, the hermeneutic of suspicion, the the skeptic, or of the unconditionally trusting? But if both should be required, much trust as well as much distrust, from where would science then be permitted to take its unconditional faith or conviction on which it rests, that truth is more important than any other thing, including every other conviction. Precisely this conviction could never have come into being if both truth and untruth constantly proved to be useful. Which is the case. It sounds a little strange, but Nietzsche is saying often it's lies and deceptions that allow people to go on living Mm -hmm. or even to survive or uh, (laughs) that kind often what nature teaches is that the deceptive wins uh, (laughs) and, and that kind of thing thus faith in science which after all exists undeniably science exists undeniably cannot owe its origin to a calculus of utility it must have originated in spite of the fact that the disutility and dangerousness of the will to truth, of truth at any price, is proved to it constantly. At any price, how well we understand these words once we have offered and slaughtered one faith after another on this altar. Science has slaughtered one belief after another on its altar of... Oh, but we can get to the truth. We can get... But where where is its... Given that if science is looking at the earth, we see that that an animal's ability to camouflage itself, for instance, can help it to survive. Not to mention all the other ways that lies and shadings and and this kind of thing can actually um, be very useful to a person's or group's survival. So, coming to the conclusion... Consequently, will to truth does not mean I will not allow myself to be deceived, but, and there is no alternative, the will to truth means I will not deceive, not even myself. That's what science is acting out of at every second. And Nietzsche says, and he underlines this, and with that conviction, we stand on moral ground mm-hmm. meaning non empirical ground mm-hmm. you can't get that conviction out of nature it's mm-hmm. already a pre mm-hmm. a metaphysical presupposition that yeah. even empirical science brings to its work that mm-hmm. truth is more valuable somehow not you not more useful mm-hmm. more valuable even when it hurts to get it even when some people pursuing it like can get slaughtered, you know, or... uh, uh, Right. uh, Yeah. Hmm. For you only have to ask yourself carefully, why do you not want to deceive? Especially if it should seem, and it certainly does seem, as if life aims, life itself aims at semblance, meaning, uh, meaning error, deception, simulation, delusion, self-delusion. There's so much of it. (laughs) Okay, last paragraph. Thus the question, why science, leads back to the moral problem. Why have morality at all when life, nature, and history are not moral? Why have truth if everything is just power? No doubt, those who are truthful in that audacious and ultimate sense that is presupposed by the faith in science thus do affirm another world than the world of life, nature, and history. And insofar as they affirm this other world, look, must they not by the same token negate its counterpart, this world, our world? But you will have gathered what I am driving at, namely, that it is still a metaphysical faith upon which our faith in science, we godless metaphysicians, our faith in science rests, that even we seekers after knowledge today, we godless anti-metaphysicians, still take our fire too from the flame lit by a faith that is thousands of years old, that Christian faith which was also the faith of Plato, that God is the truth, and that truth is divine.
0: Wow. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? That's spectacular. Yes. And what it makes me think of, if we look at... Forget about the bearded man in
1: the sky. If you understand guys like Augustine and Plato, what God means in their mouth is that there's something else than the play of forces. Right. that 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 the miracle of the mind is that it can...
0: Reach this strange thing called truth, which isn't a mere force. Right. Yeah. Well, and it makes me think of what's playing out today, especially where we're at in the Bay Area and close to Silicon Valley, this belief in the singularity um, of exponential change that Ray Kurzweil's really helped popularize. Hmm. That basically, with these exponentially changing technologies and the emergence of AI, that AI will eventually overtake human intelligence and that's the singularity Mm. and there is this kind of um, almost apocalyptic religious feeling that it's heaven-like yeah Uh, and of course not everyone agrees with it but what's fascinating is again this is driven by science and technology the faith in that that it will deliver in the same sort of way that christians think that Faith will deliver something too. Mm-hmm. So it seems that that's bearing out not just in his day, but even today. Yeah. Uh, and points taken. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um,
1: very fine. Okay. So now Nietzsche realizes that all his attacks on truth um, are at best half-baked. He understands he has to make them because there are all sorts of pompous people and we are we are they out there strutting and saying, this is true, this is true, this is true, this is true, when in fact we're right. using language and language is so deceptive and we can deconstruct the language and everything turns into a play of metaphors that depend on other meanings, which depend on other meanings and the whole linguistic web is empty. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and, and so on. But then he comes to this that even he, even he, this destroyer, is destroying because he wants to get to the truth. And that's what science's entire energy is built upon, this presupposition that the mind can reach beyond the play of power power dynamics. And it may not. Nietzsche's not saying, therefore, there is this thing, but he's saying that we seem built to... Presuppose this in all that we do, that there's such a thing as this call it what you want, but this other world <laughs> yeah. that is free and clear of the power dynamics that that drive, you know, that drive us yeah. largely. But is there is there is there a truth? Are there truths that can be had that deliver us from oh that's only your truth, right. you know? Yeah. Okay. So, th- that's part of what Nietzsche... Well, I I, I shouldn't make a too easy segue, um, but I think in his idea of the Ubermensch, the Superman, this is exactly Nietzsche's attempted answer to the death of God, and yet this pursuit of truth, and this need for a positive vision, and this need to say yes, he realizes that um, the the deconstruction of the old self, or of the erroneous mind, is only the first step. And there must be a disciplined path toward the higher being that is to emerge. Um, uh, and instead of calling it the saint, or the Buddha, or the enlightened uh, yogi, he because he's experimenting, he's trying to think it out as the ubermensch, the next evolute. Uh, not just one person, but a type of person that's going to become more and more prevalent in the world. We're going to become a higher version of ourselves. Not by, well of course, what would Nietzsche say about today, about the tinkering with the genome? God knows, and that's another whole, whole issue, But his thought was by a kind of moral uplift, not the old morality that he's been picking away at—the old Christian morality of Europe. But still, he's he's saying that this new, uh, we should develop toward this new uh, uh, super super morality or superman morality. So, one of the ways we can uh, uh, lead to this point again before I I, want to share something is. Uh, lead, uh, lead to the present point but in a very uh, uh, pointed way in Nietzsche's phrases he said I'm done at, it was his same destructive and then to the creative he said I'm done asking free from what I've tried in my own way to break us free from all these cultural illusions and all these mistakes right. but now I want to ask free
0: for what <laughs> yeah right And on that cliffhanger, Nietzsche's philosophizing with a hammer has reached a terminus. Tune in in the near future when Professor Novak and I will be discussing Nietzsche's affirmative philosophy, which can best be encapsulated in the Latin Stoic phrase amor fati, which is translated as love of one's fate, or as my friend Mirza Khan likes to translate it, loving reality. In the meantime... Stay hungry.